0: Well good morning HBC, hope you're doing well in the Lord, thankful for the opportunity to be here. Some of you it's welcome back, I know that there's been sickness traveling around during this season, very common for the the crud to make its journey around from household to household and sometimes that means staying home and listening to the message online and so if that was you over the last Sunday or two, we're just grateful that you're back and Um, For those that are out this Sunday, well, we'll just welcome them back, Lord willing, in a Sunday or two. As I thought about what I was going to preach this morning, my heart and my mind just kept coming back to a single verse of Scripture that I've used um, often in counseling here in the ministry of our church. And so that was um, really heavy on my heart. So I want to invite you to go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to Isaiah Uh, chapter 41, Isaiah chapter 41, and for those newer to the church, you may not know what my role is here at HBC. Uh, My name is John Crick. I serve as the family life pastor on staff, which means uh, basically I get to work with some incredible people um, on staff as well as uh, church members who uh, lead in various ministries of our church. Um, the, the youngest, of course, is with children's ministries, and Zach Stone is uh, a faithful brother in the Lord and the director of our children's ministry. It's always been a joy to serve the Lord uh, alongside uh, Zach. And then we have just some incredible um, lay servants that um, rise to the occasion week in and week out who pour themselves out for our children all for the sake of the gospel. And, and we praise God for Jim and Gay Andrews and uh, Mandy Reese and Tammy Gagnon and um, you know, I just think of uh, Justin Faulkner, also just with ABC and Greg and Susan, and just a number of folks that just um, are faithful in the ministry. And I get a, I get to work with uh, everybody, alongside everybody, and it's just a, it's a joy. And that goes all the way to middle school, high school, and even to our college students now, with um, Justin Faulkner and, and Nate Carr uh, handling. Um, the bulk of those ministries as well. So it's really a blessing to be able to serve every week um, with some of y'all and especially with the the staff that we have. But the elders have also asked me to do uh, another uh, assignment here at HBC, and that's to run point on the counseling ministry at our church. And as you can imagine, a church our size, there's plenty of opportunities for um, counseling to take place. And... uh, I'm hoping that this message this morning will be a little bit less preachy and a little bit more teachy, just a a counseling session with us all together as we we learn and grow together in God's Word. Um, There are numerous opportunities uh, for counseling and discipleship at our church, so much so that you may have been part of our eight-week class that just took place called Messy Care and Discipleship. And again, we want our people to continue to know that they can be equipped and can trust the Word of God, leading them by the Spirit of God um, to to help the people of God find answers to their problems. And um, we're grateful for that ministry. Um, As we learned in the class, you don't need a degree or a doctorate. You don't need to get caught up in the trappings of professional titles or um, certifications that our society often deems necessary in order to be a counselor. And this isn't to say that additional training can't be helpful. But I just want to recognize the fact that there are many in evangelical churches today who are missing, or I should even say dismissing, the absolute sufficiency and the authority of God's word to help people with their problems. Okay, And we got it. We got everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness, Did you know that 80% of the counseling that takes place in our church actually takes place at the life group level? Life group leaders um, coming alongside and, and even peer discipleship relationships as people just um, walk and share life together. It's corrective in nature, helping us see our blind spots and people saying, Hey, do you really think the Lord would have you do this? And, and getting realigned, and we, we, we celebrate that. And how is that even possible? Over 80% of it takes place at that level. God's word, God's spirit, God's people, empowered to help God's people with their problems. That's how. That's how it takes place. And it's wonderful. Now, there are uh, some counseling issues that arise that are going to have to come to the, the elders or maybe a higher level of specialized counseling that is needed to help in certain cases. But the lion's share of counseling, at least at HBC, takes place right here at the primary discipleship level of our church in life groups. Of course, there are many different counseling needs that arise in the church. Problems stemming from adultery to addiction to alcohol or drugs. Marital and family counseling that connects with men and women, adolescents can reveal a host of issues. Counseling needs on forgiveness and submission, suffering, trials. There's, there's a, a ton of things that come up. Yet if you were to ask me, or anyone who spends a lot of time doing counseling, what are the big categories, um, I, I would share with you that there's really four big ones that come up most often. And I wanted to provide those for you, just in case you were curious. Uh, The first is this, fear of man, worry, anxiety, that's all lumped into one category. uh, That comes up regularly. Anger, bitterness, unforgiveness is another category. Again, all lumped together. Lust, pornography, sexual sin is a third category. Depression, despair is a fourth category. And so as we take a break from Daniel today, um, the Lord burdened my heart to just preach and teach on one of the big four uh, categories that come up in counseling. And so it's my hope that um, not only will we be able to address a, a couple today, but that as we look forward to 2023, that we'll be able to offer equipping classes like we just did, that will help in certain areas, as well as um, future sermons that might take place right even here from our pulpit. But let's unpack Isaiah 41.10 together. You may have already guessed from the sermon title in your notes what we're going to focus on. The title of the message is, God's Prescription for Your Fear and Anxiety. And I was very intentional about this title because we can look around at our society and we can see how they use so many different coping mechanisms, whether that's reaching for a beer or reaching for a substance in order to deal with anxiety and fear. We can also um, see many people that actually reach out to their doctors and reach for prescriptions for uh, psychotropic medications to treat their symptoms. you may recognize that, that's, not, that's common to us. We know that that happens quite a bit. But I don't know that you know just how many people um, that affects in society. We're not talking about just um, a million or so people. We're talking about a lot. So allow me to share some t- statistics. And this is a list of the top 10 psychotropic medications and the estimated numbers of people using them. Number one on the list is Xanax, 48.5 million people. Number two, Zoloft, 41.4 million. Number three, Celexa, 39.4 million. Number four, Prozac, 28.3 million. Number five, Ativan, 27.9 million. Number six, Deseril, 26.2 million. Lexapro, 24.9 million; Cymbalta, 18.6 million people; Wellbutrin, 16.1 million; the Fexer uh, XR, 15.8 million people. That's a lot of folks. This this anxiety, uh, panic attacks, fear, uh, depression. It is it is a pandemic on our planet. It is an epidemic. I don't want to use the word pandemic. That's got to take us back to, our, to places we don't want to go. But it is. It really is truly an epidemic on our, our planet. And perhaps you are here today and you take one of those medications. My goal is not to um, discourage you in any way, shape, or form. The only reason why I'm providing those statistics is so that we can see just how huge this problem is in our society in our culture, and on this planet. By the way, if you want to ever read an excellent resource that helps Christians understand more about the use of psychotropic medications, there's an amazing book written by a Christian doctor and biblical counselor called Good Mood, Bad Mood. And uh, his name is Charles Hodges. And it's just an incredibly insightful book. And so maybe you have been caught in the crossroads of that, This doctor wants to prescribe medication for my son's ADHD. What do I do? How do I respond? This book can help you. Um, But I do have a, a question that flows out of all this. What did people do before the invention of psychotropic medications in the last 100 years? How did they deal with their fears and anxieties? God's prescription has withstood the test of time, And before I read the verse, I thought it would be helpful for me just to ask some heart-probing questions to till the soil of your heart and mine. What people outside of the Lord do you fear the most? And by fear, I mean fear of man, fear of disappointing or hurting. You may even fear what they think or say about you. Who is it that causes you to be most anxious? Is it your boss? Your in laws? Maybe your own spouse or kids? Perhaps it's a neighbor? What circumstances in your life cause you to be fearful or to worry excessively? Is it your job? Your singleness? Your finances? What is it? Health concerns. How do you try to deal with anxiety and worry and despondency? I would imagine this sermon just got a little bit heavier as you started to dwell and think about those things a little bit. But even that, my friends, is biblical. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. And it's true. When, when life gets hard and we do have fears and anxieties, they are going to weigh us down. But the second half of that proverb says, but a good word makes him glad. Let's get a good word from the Lord today by reading Isaiah 41.10 as follows. And this is what it says in the New American Standard. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a stunning and encouraging verse for us. And we could dive right into this verse and glean many things from it and be blessed by it. But we would actually be doing God's word a disservice if we divorced it from its context because there's a bigger picture that He would have us see. It would also neglect the heart of God who used the prophet Isaiah to record 40 chapters uh, before this. There's so much background material that is relevant to Isaiah's message that can assist our understanding of this verse. Some of you are good Bible students and you may have already asked the question, well, wasn't Isaiah written for Israel? So is there even any direct application for me today? Fair question. That is, we do know that Isaiah was prophesying about the nation of Israel, his message here particularly directed to the southern kingdom of Judah, warning them of their coming Babylonian captivity because of their sin. Yet we also see, as you read the book, and it's called the fifth gospel for a reason because it points us to just the hope that Israel was going to have under Cyrus the king and then eventually to the Messiah and the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so... So th- there's there's a hope that it was pointing towards, but what does this have to do with Christians today? Well, when we look at the Bible through a literal, historical, grammatical lens, we do want to emphasize that there is a, a distinction between Israel and the Church, and that there are actually there's a plan that God has uh, for for the nation, and we should recognize this. God is still going to keep His covenant promises to the nation of Israel regarding land and the physical kingdom that he will establish one day on this earth. That is going to happen. There are so many prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. God's word would not be true if that did not happen. Just lobbying for my apologetic right there before somebody tries to dispute that. But we must also maintain the continuity of how God deals with people through the ages. We are all children of Abraham, by faith. And when it comes to the spiritual blessings of the kingdom, we fully participate right now. The truths of this passage, while they have immediate interpretation to Judah's historical situation, have definite application to Christians today. So that's a very formal, what we would call exegetical explanation for all the, my seminards out there um, who, who appreciate good uh, hermeneutics and an interpretation of the text. But now let's look at the book of Isaiah from a practical standpoint. We get to learn a lot of lessons about Israel, don't we? We get we, we to see um, their, their spiritual complacency and their discontentment, um, their tendency towards idolatry and towards rebellion, just like Isaiah was addressing in real time. And like Israel, we so easily become hypocritical and superficial in our worship and service of God. And you've heard me say this before, and it bears repeating. Israel starts with the letter I for a reason. Because you and I are just as sinful and just as desperate and in need of God's grace. So our concern today is not only with the sad reality of their spiritual rebellion in the opening 39 chapters then, but not as much as we should be concerned with our own spiritual rebellion today. And so Isaiah begins with an indictment that is both shocking and hurtful. Shocking when you consider the one being sinned against is the sovereign God of the universe, their covenant-keeping God, who was continually being faithful to them despite their unfaithfulness. And he expected... to find good fruit from the vine that he had planted and carefully tended. And it was hurtful in the sense that sin has harmful consequences of judgment that impact the sinner and all those around him, tearing down the very fabric and the overall witness of God's people that they were supposed to have. Hurtful as well in the sense that sin grieves the heart of God who has called them and us to live a life of glorifying him with holiness and truthfulness. Any parent in the room knows how painful it is when you have a child that rebels against you and goes their own way. And you realize that they don't know it. Again, you have to instruct them. But they're, 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 they're hitting a dead end. There is no life that's going to come out of the direction that they're heading. And, and yet, sometimes they're adamant about going their direction, right? They're, 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 they're strong-willed. They're just going to go. And, and as parents, that can be very discouraging. It'd be painful as long as that re- rebellion lasts. And that's a real reality. And I know I've got some young people in this room. This is not um, what you want your parents to have to, to, to be facing. Yet, I do think that there's an opportunity for me to encourage both parents and uh, their children today as we look to God's example. How does God reply to Israel? Does he come down with a heavy hand? Does he drive nails of shame into their hardness of heart and disobedience? Not exactly, but he does allow them to reap what they have sown and taste the painful consequences of their sinful choices. And it's here where a valuable lesson from the eternal and paternal perspective can be seen. If you are a parent in the room today, you might be tempted to come down on on your children, hard on your children the same way that I can when I when I parent in the flesh versus being led by the spirit. Let's take a lesson out of God's playbook in Isaiah today. It's a shepherding lesson for all of us using two straightforward commands followed by three extraordinary promises that offer encouragement to his children. Look again at the beginning of verse 10. Our first point in your outline as well, do not fear for I am with you. There are several things in life that can cause us to have genuine fear, and not all fears are sinful. In fact, some fears which are, can even be useful or, or wise, protective fear, for example, usually helps keep us instinctually safe. For example, if you're at the golf course with David Duncan, and he yells, for You might want to duck um, so that you protect your head and it doesn't doesn't hit you. Right, Matthew? You know, it happens. That's a good thing. It's a protective fear to lock the doors at night. There's that element of security and stuff that's woven into the fabric. That's a healthy fear that you can have. There is also the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. This means that we are to show reverence, honor, and exhortation for the holy God we worship. Enslaving fear, however, is the kind of fear that damages and negatively affects us in our walks, the fear of losing something idolatrous, the fear of poverty, the fear of failing health, the fear of failure or criticism. The nation of Israel dealt with all these fears when the Assyrians persecuted them And when the Babylonians would eventually take them captive, we see a vivid glimpse of this. If you look at Isaiah 7, verse 2, where it describes, I'll read it for you, you don't have to turn there, where it describes war against Jerusalem, saying, When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. They were shaking in their boots. And I think that if any one of us in this country heard that um, you know, China's assembling forces in both um, Canada and Mexico to invade this country and to take it over, there might be some fear involved, right? They were terrified. And this happens right on the heels of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 6, where Isaiah shares just how bad it was going to get. In verse 11 of chapter 6, Isaiah basically asked, Lord, how long do you want me to keep prophesying your message to your people? And the Lord answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Can you even imagine? And this is what God was doing. He was purging his nation because if they were going to go ahead and, and trust um, in other nations, if they were going to trust in, in uh, foreign provisions instead of the Lord, it was going to come with devastating consequences. And guess what? Eventually, it did. And though our nation has never experienced this level of devastation, we have some pretty low points that have reminded us of our own fears. Civil war. lose sight of that. All the pain and fear that was associated going through such a time as that. In his first inaugural speech in 1933, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the newly elected president of the U.S., addressed a nation that was still reeling from the Great Depression, hoping to ignite a more optimistic outlook regarding that economic crisis. He declared, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Fear itself. Well-taught group. Yeah, so that's, but then, again, who's that putting the, the onus on? <laughs> Us. Won't work won't work. I understand the rally cry of President Roosevelt. But if I could rewrite his speech for him, it would be more accurate to say the only thing we have to fear is God himself. That's the truth. That's biblical. That will preach, won't it, Jerry? It will, because it is the truth. You see, fear often shows up in our lives when we're at risk of losing something. Our wealth, our our 401ks, depreciation of investment property, our health, our our reputation, our position at work, or even our loved ones. And it reveals our natural desire to protect the things in life that are important to us rather than, now now get this because this is so important, rather than supernaturally entrusting them to God's care and control. When fear takes over, it cripples us emotionally and it drains us spiritually. And the Lord is calling us not to fear. Why? Fear can impact our desire to even uh, be evangelistic in our homes and in our workplace out of the fear of man. It can keep us uh, from taking a stand against something that is unethical, that is taking place in our workplace or in our school. Fear can impact our service to extend our lives and resources for the benefit, excuse me, of others. Fear can impact our sacrifice and our willingness to venture into new territory for the sake of the gospel. A fearful spirit makes believers more vulnerable to the enemy who tempts you and I to compromise biblical convictions and to take matters into our own hands and to rely on our own strength. God has always called his people to trust in him by faith and commanded you and I not to fear. And the command, fear not or do not be afraid, is actually used over a hundred times in both the Old Testament and New Testament. So what is the remedy to our fears? It is God himself. He says, for I am with you. The only remedy for fear is faith. Faith and trust in our sovereign creator. Only when we trust the reality of God's presence will we realize that we have access to the power, to the providence and protection. I know that's a lot of Ps coming at you right there, but that's intentional. Help us remember him, his his preservation, of our lives. This is the testimony that the Lord himself provided for his people. In Genesis 15:1, God reminds Abraham, after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, "Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. I am your protection." In Genesis 26, 24, God reminds Isaac, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. In Genesis 46, 3, God reminds Jacob, and he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. God reminds Moses in Deuteronomy 21, when you go out to battle against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, when you go out and you see the overwhelming circumstances and what you're up against, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. Continued on with Joshua, God reminds Joshua in Joshua 1.9, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And though fear is a common emotion, the Lord doesn't want us to be constantly gripped by it. He wants to be the one that constantly grips us with his presence, with that reality. And it's so hard to, we lose sight of that, don't we? With him being with us. And that's what he's, he's calling us to remember. He said you can either let fear grip your heart or you can let me grip it. You pick. Faith in God or fear of man. But before we move on from fear, we must also look at the Siamese twin of fear found in the second point of our outline. And it's called anxiety. Anxiety. Look again at verse 10. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. The Lord understood Israel's tendency to be overwhelmed by their circumstances, to take their eyes off of him and to look to themselves and other people to take care of them. Thankfully, you nor I have this problem. That's a joke. Anxiety and fear feed off each other. And thus, God mentions both in our verse. And this verb here means uh, look in dismay or gaze about in anxiety. It has uh, a reference to those who are fearful and hence look about in all directions to see whether there's anything that can harm them. Listen to how one pastor describes it. Why is anxiety so uh, damaging? Because it is though we constantly have a message playing in our mind telling us to be afraid. We are programmed early in life by others to be anxious concerning relationships or situations, and that fear continually torments and punishes us, paralyzing us from doing God's will. Just stop here for a moment, and there's more to the quote. But isn't it fascinating to think about that you're actually, as you look back in your past life circumstances, exposed to people who had a negative reaction and response to anxiety? when a certain situation happens, and then when you're faced with that, well, then the only thing I have to remember to go back on is so-and-so, they responded with anxiety, so I guess that's what I do too. But he goes on, he says this, our worries can dominate all our goals and desires, blocking our spiritual growth and preventing us from building our faith. This does not honor God in the least. In fact, our anxiety is a way of saying we do not think God is powerful enough to protect us. We become increasingly doubtful of the Lord's powerful promises. Since we don't trust God, we begin to assess and respond to his circumstances in our own strength and reasoning power. The result is that we come up empty in life. Fear and anxiety simply do not fit the life of a child of God. We may have moments of them, but we should handle them quickly, remembering God's promise that he will use all things for our benefit and his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Anxiety is not the testimony that God wanted for Israel, nor is it the one that he wants for believers today. God is with us. And by the way, if he is not your God, you should fear and be anxious. You should anxiously look about you because you are on dangerous ground. The guillotine of God's wrath could fall upon you at any moment. And your life could be ended and taken away just like that. I was leaving our neighborhood last night, driving here to review my sermon notes. And I pulled out on 127. And um, it was right across, outside the street of one of our church members' houses. And so I got out of my car because I wanted to make sure it wasn't anything that happened with them. And I ran over. I explained that I was a pastor. And those were church members that lived there. And it was... um, a male in his 40s who was riding a motorcycle and a delivery truck made a left-hand turn right in front of him. He struck the back of the truck and he was laying there with a white sheet over him. And did he have any idea when he went out on that motorcycle ride that he was going to be driving down the street and that somebody was gonna make a left-hand turn and that he was gonna stand before God, holy God, and give an account for his life Last night at 6.30 p.m. And, it, and, and maybe he was in Christ. I, I, I'm just using this. It, it, it put an urgency upon my heart to share with you that if you're someone who's been coming with family week after work, week after week, and Sunday after Sunday, and you have family members that are saying, son, daughter, repent, trust in the Lord. And tomorrow is not promised. It isn't. Dad, turn to the Lord. You don't need to go against mom. Let's let's have faith together in Jesus Christ. Let's trust in the one who can give us security. Let's turn completely in faith and be delivered from the power of sin. In our lives, only in Christ can you have victory over fear and anxiety. Anxiety is the world's reminder of how desperately they need Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Anxiety exists, and the world is always going to be anxious, and thus there's going to be all these millions and millions of doses of medication because that's the only thing that they can turn to that's going to help with it. And yet God... Has a different prescription. The antidote of anxiety can only come through the context of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's why earlier in Isaiah that he called him Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. It was Jesus himself, who called us not to worry about the mountain, mountain of tomorrow, but just to use his grace and rely upon him to climb the hill of today. It's God in his word that says, do not be anxious for anything, for anything. But through everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And what's going to happen when we rely upon him in faith, as we trust him by faith? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And the call not to be anxious is always related to some aspect of God's character and what he will do for you. Look away from worry to the one who has all power to deliver you from your fears and anxieties. If he can take away the, think about this, if he can take away the fear of going to hell, which he can, and give you security and joy in him, what fear can he possibly not overcome? The fear of eternal torment has been dealt with. What possible fear could the enemy or your own heart create that he could not deal with? How can we know this? What does that future look like? Our verse reveals answers in the form of three extraordinary promises at the end of verse 10. I will strengthen you. Surely, I will help you. Surely, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Each of these are in your outline. For a reason, because God wants us to understand what each one means. After giving both commands, do not fear and do not be anxious, God gave us two reasons. He said, I am with you, reminding us of his presence. Before he also says, I am your God, reminding us of his person. But now how is he going to expand on why his presence and person should bring us so much comfort? He says, I will strengthen you. This is to remind us of God's power. For my note takers, I would even write this in, in, in the outline. After point number one, you can write God's presence. After point number two, you can write God's person. And now next to I will strengthen you, you can write God's power. What does his power consist of? Well, we know he's all powerful. We know he's sovereign over every single detail of our lives. So his power will be seen as we exercise our faith in Him. When the Lord says, I will strengthen you, it really means that he will strengthen our faith in who he is. What did this look like for Israel? Historically, they could look back and reflect on God's presence and power with them. Whether that was Moses through the burning bush or on top of Mount Sinai or the Ark of the Covenant providing protective power throughout their history as a theocratic nation. But look at the immediate context of Isaiah chapter 40, which just emphasized the greatness of God all the way through it. This is so powerful. Yes, that was punny on purpose. Look at verse 28 of chapter 40. It says, do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not get tired, they will walk and not become weary. I realize that those verses can make for some great t-shirts that you wear to the gym, along with Philippians 4:13, that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. But There are physical elements to which God shows up and provides us with the energy that we need. Whoever serves, serves in the strength that he supplies. But the spiritual need, the spiritual might that he can give you when you are facing temptation in this life to yield to anxiety and fear, when you are being tempted to look at something on the internet that you should not look at, when you are being tempted to covet this Or that. That's spiritual ammunition. So much so that in Ephesians 6.10, you've heard me mention this before. It calls us to stand firm in the strength of his might. It's his might. You you can't do it on your own. Maybe you are someone here who has suffered from panic attacks and fear. Maybe you are someone here that, that suffers from extreme levels of anxiety. You cannot do it on your own. You cannot will yourself to overcome it. You can't. You will not be able by divine design. You need the enablement, the power of Christ through the gospel and the enabling work of the Holy Spirit to overcome it, period. And that's what he promises to give. This is a great lesson for us. Because the timing of God writing this to Israel was right before they were going to be captive to the Babylonians. This wasn't when things were going well. And the same is true for us. This is is a message for us when we are weak. Sure, we may not feel the the need for God's work or presence when, when things are going well. That's common for us all. But when we get to that place in our weakness, when we cry out and say, Lord, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, right? He shows up to do what? He will help us. He will, he will strengthen us. Yes, he will. The Lord can strengthen our faith in him to see us through it all. So, do you really want to be free of fear and anxiety? I think we would all answer that with an emphatic yes. And the answer you would think should come easily since no one wants to suffer. But being free from these emotions requires all of us to step out in faith in God's power and enablement to overcome them. But there's a second promise that comes at the end of verse 10. God says, Surely I will help you. And this points us to God's providence. And I, I just wanted to make sure. Sometimes you know you're like, I want to give everybody a good, concise explanation of what God's providence is. And um, you ever been to GotQuestions.org? You ever use that website? But it actually really provided a helpful snapshot. It says this: Divine providence is the governance of God by which, with wisdom and love, uh, He cares for and directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is. In complete control of all things, He is sovereign over the universe as a whole. Psalm one hundred three, nineteen. The physical world. Matthew five, forty-five. The affairs of nations. Psalm sixty-six, seven. Human destiny. Galatians 1.15, Human successes and failures. Luke one, fifty-two. And the protection of His people. Psalm four, eight. This doctrine stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed by chance or fate. And through divine providence, God accomplishes his will and ensures that his purposes are fulfilled. And that was true for Israel, and that's true for you and I, dear friend, today. He's going to help us. In fact, I would say it this way. You cannot even name one situation in your life that is going on right now that he cannot help with. There's not one. And you may want him to change some of the circumstances, and he may or may not. But the reality is, regardless of what he does, he can't help you through it. And he will, if you'll trust him by faith. Do you need salvation today? God's providence can give it to you. Do you need sanctification today? God's providence can give you the heart of repentance that you need. Do you need hope today? God's providence can point you to all the promises of Scripture that will allow truth to override your fears and anxieties. Fear and anxiety are very real emotions. And a life governed by emotions will always be unstable, and that is why the Lord desires our lives to be governed by faith and facts first so that we can discern our feelings and emotions to see whether they're honorable or sinful. I've said, if you live on emotions... You'll ride on the roller coaster of life up and down, up and down. And we're not designed to ride on roller coasters. My kids, yeah, my kids would try to argue otherwise. But after time, and if they did stay on fury all day, you would get sick. You would get sick. And the order of this must never change. Faith is number one, facts are number two, and our feelings are number three. The way you feel should be at third place in your life. This is the spiritual grid that will help you and I eradicate sinful fears and anxieties in our lives. And how do I know this to be true? God's word affirms it, as we have seen from Isaiah 41.10. And like many of you in this room, I have experienced it personally. I can look back at my life before Christ when I serve the idol of my own glory and had my identity wrapped up in a football career and was John Crick the football player and that's all everybody ever asked me about anyway nothing else in life oh how's football how's football going why because they knew that that was the the identity that i embraced and in 2001 playing in a preseason game against the Cleveland Browns. I herniated a disc in my lower back and would never play football again. And in those coming weeks, I had no idea what I was going to do next. Why? Because my identity was wrapped up in that idol. And it was painful. But I got saved through that process because Jesus Christ gave me a new identity. Jesus Christ helped me to see the idol that I was serving and what I was giving my life to and that it could come to an end. But my identity in him never ends. And that's true for you, my friends. And don't think for a moment that once you become a Christian that the the idols will go away. Our hearts are indeed, I think Edward said it, or Spurgeon, I can't remember who, Idol Factories, who said it? Anyone remember our hearts are idol factories? John Calvin, thank you. I got see that, that a boy. Thank you. Our, yeah, you, you rescued me. Get my references, but the idols don't go away. So much so that I was a preacher um, out west at a church, and. Um, it, it was a joy to be able to preach each and every week. But one of the things that came up is I started to get some negative feedback about my preaching. And people became critical, um, some people in the, in the church. And I made it an ambition in my heart that I was going to prove to them that I was the greatest preacher since sliced bread. I will prove them wrong. Every angle that they came at me with. More application, more illustration, more this, more that. I was running around trying to think. I was literally standing in the pulpit like this on a Sunday morning and I was thinking about certain people in the crowd while I was preaching my sermon. And the Lord allowed me. And listen, it was never about them. It was about me. It was about the idol that I fashioned in my heart. And rather than trust the Lord by faith, rather than looking to the facts about what God promised to do for me, if I just remain faithful to him and make it my ambition to be pleasing unto him, I decided to listen to my feelings and serve the idol of my heart. And things got so bad that I couldn't even think straight and would feel anxious every time that I would get up to preach after all this happened. And I'll tell you, Adam asked me to preach for him a couple weeks ago. And um, was grateful for the opportunity. But guess what came back to revisit me? The, the feeling of anxiety hit me again. A new wave of it came all over. And what did I do? I activated my faith. I had to, I didn't want to have that feeling. And I stopped. I was in my office chair. I put my head down. I folded my hands and I prayed. And I said, dear God, I just want this sermon to speak to your people. I want it to feed your people, all of them. It's, it's for them. And don't allow me to have these feelings. I'm trusting in you to help me write this sermon. And this next part will be hard for you to understand, but there's block diagrams with preaching, and I had this block diagram opened up on my computer screen, and as soon as I finished saying amen, I looked up to my computer screen, and the only part of the verse of Isaiah 41.10 that I could read on my computer screen said, I am with you. I am with you. And... Immediately, my heart was just overwhelmed and, and settled. I, so much so, you can ask Victoria. I went home and I told her about just what happened. You know, it was just where I have these counseling points, I have all this to do. What about, how is this going to work out? And the Lord, the Lord immediately allowed my faith to be strengthened. Immediately, the facts about God's promises to help his children came to mind, and guess what happened to that anxiety? Gone. Gone. Well, there's a third promise that the Lord provides, and this is a fitting way for us to close this message. Promise number one surely God will strengthen your faith. Promise number two surely God will help you through divine providence. Promise number three surely I will uphold you in righteousness our heavenly father gives us promises to hold on to so that we never have to be dominated by our fears and anxieties and perhaps the greatest is this third promise that reflects the protection and preservation in our lives through the power of the gospel through faith through God's power and his providence He also upholds us in righteousness. Is it our righteousness? No? Of course not. It's the righteousness of Christ that paves the road to our eternal state no matter what this world tries to stain us with. No matter what sinful mire that a believer may have to step in on our journey home. This righteousness gives us great confidence in the one who is making the promises to deliver us to the eternal doorstep where we'll behold his presence forever. He will be with us directly. We will be right with him in his presence. The one who began a great work in us will preserve us and complete us. Amen? Amen. Amen. The words of the psalmist in Psalm 23 came to mind as I was preparing for this message as we journey through some dark days on this side of the cross. And this is what the psalmist writes. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I go through valleys sometimes in this life of deep, deep darkness, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod, his discipline, and your staff, his protection and preservation, they comfort me. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, I do have to tell this to you before you go, as soon as this sermon finishes, you know what's coming. You're gonna step out of the doors of this church and you're gonna go back into your life and the temptations to be fearful and to be anxious are gonna try to come in again, aren't they? And they're gonna try to overwhelm you. And it's my prayer and my hope for this body of believers that God's prescription for your fear and anxiety Given in Isaiah 41.10 today will be medicine for your soul. Medicine for your soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word as we bow our heads in gratitude, giving you thanks for it. I thank you for your faithfulness to help me understand it and to proclaim it to your people. And Father, you are the great shepherd. You are the one that has put these commands for us not to fear and not to be anxious in your word. And I pray specifically, Lord, for those in our church family who do suffer from fear and worry and anxiety. That you would allow the prescription of Isaiah 41.10 to minister directly to their hearts so that the next time that they're tempted to feel any of those emotions, that the spiritual grid of faith and facts would keep their feelings in order and that they would always stay in that order, that our feelings would be third, and that our faith and trust in you would lead to our identity being rooted in you, which would, will lead to our security in you as we look at the facts of our life, that you're sovereign, that you control every detail, and that you're doing a work, even through the hardest of our days, to sanctify us and to glorify yourself. And that would help us to overcome the feelings of despair, of worry, and anxiety. It is your prescription that has withstood the test of time, and all of us here today want to praise you for it. We ask that you would continue to encourage our hearts. We give you praise and thanks. In Christ's name, amen.